The Ringer Reality TV Podcast is the home for all things unscripted TV. The feed will feature challenge recaps with Johnny Bananas, Bachelor in Paradise recaps from Amelia Wedemeyer, and a weekly survey of the reality TV landscape with Juliet Littman and Callie Curry. And much more coverage across the reality spectrum from Survivor to Below Deck to Selling Sunset. Check out the Ringer Reality TV Podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hello and welcome to the Ringer MLB show. My name is Michael Bauman and I'm a staff writer at the Ringer. Joining me today is a Ringer staff writer who did not, I repeat, did not win our World Series auction draft pool. It's Zach Cram. Say hello, Zach. Congratulations. This is I, I knew Atlanta. You you knew right when you picked them, Atlanta was going to bring you to the promise. This land. is just how I drew it up. Well, I said it at the time. Like I thought they were undervalued, and and even then they looked like a near lock to get in the divisional round. They were good value. And I certainly didn't see it shaking out this way after I picked against them in every series. Uh Dan Comer, who uh, works on our copy desk, uh, is a big Braves fan and thanked me for reverse jinxing them all the way to the title uh, last night. So I'm just I'm just happy to to do my part. Um, I don't think it's fair to hold me to the same standards as the others of you who are not possessed of the gift of sight. I thought it was really funny that we went on the Barbecue Boys pod and did a World Series MVP draft, and we picked 12 players between the four of us, and not one of us got Solaire. So none of us won that draft, but you won yeah, the one that, that I'm that I'm not surprised about because this the sort of the conceit of the World Series MVP is that it's unpredictable. And I mean, Solaire earned all of that. You know, we're gonna talk about great moments from from this postseason. It's basically for me, just pick a Jorge Soler home run because he had three of them in the World Series that I think are gonna go down that could be the cover of the the commemorative championship DVD. Yeah, he absolutely crushed. Last night, if we want to get to talking about that game, it wasn't a particularly close game. Max Fried was dominant, and Solaire hit that early three-run homer, and the game was basically over right then and there. I think Houston, you messaged us right after it happened. Houston not scoring in the first inning felt like 
a gut punch. Like that was their chance to break it open, get the momentum in front of the home crowd and push it to game seven. But as soon as they didn't score runs in the early innings, it, it was it was kind of a, a fait accompli. It feels like about 80% of the games this postseason have involved a team that needed a win getting a bunch of guys on early and either not scoring at all or like scoring one or two when five seemed like it was on the table. The Dodgers did this a couple of times. Um, I mean, the Astros have done this well, the Astros two or three in, times in, in, in just in this series. In game four was the big one where Soler and Swanson hit the the two home runs in the seventh inning to give Atlanta a 3-1 series lead. And I was surprised in the moment because I was like, wait, Houston's only up by a run. They've had 18 yeah. guys on base tonight. Both teams left a lot of left a lot of traffic on the bases. I said this. Uh, I forget if it was on Twitter or in Slack, but the big surprise to that game was that uh, was that it was that close. That it was three two late and not like you know not like ten to nine or something in in either direction. It just seemed like there was a lot more scoring that the the scoreboard operators had just not been made aware of. Um, so I don't know. This is a. We were sort of chatting before before we hit record about the quality of this World Series, which is something of a uh, it's a it's very subjective, as subjective as most of our analysis is uh, just how good or how entertaining World Series was. And I think the conclusion that we've come to is that we've been spoiled. And this was a competitive World Series that had a lot of drama that had a couple really interesting games, but ended with a, a blowout. And, you know, we'll I don't know. Maybe I'm being unfair to the Braves. I don't know if this is like the start. This doesn't strike me as the start of a dynastic run by them or anything like that. Uh, so maybe this is going to be an outlier, you know, something like, I think like 1998, uh, a World Series that we just look back on and be like, oh yeah, that that's a, a thing that happened instead of folding into this greater overarching, you know, historical narrative. Yeah, I think. From the Atlanta franchise's perspective, it's really weird that this is the team that won the World Series. I had this in my article last night. Since 1995, which was Atlanta's last championship, 16 different teams, I'll repeat that, 16 different Atlanta teams had a better winning percentage than the 2021 group, which went only 88 and 73. It was the worst record, not just for any division winner this year, but for any playoff team because they, they were first three in, games behind the three and a half games behind the Blue Jays who didn't make the yeah, playoffs. behind the Mariners, behind every wild card. And I think like if you look at their underlying metrics, they were a little better in terms of uh, Pythagorean differential, but they still compared to, again, other Atlanta teams, they had a worse offense and a worse pitching staff than most of the teams since 1995. Even if you just look at the franchise's average record since 1995, 88 and 73 brought that average down because this has been a team that for two plus decades has made the playoffs and then not won. They've had a lot of calamitous losses from Craig Kimbrell staying in the bullpen while Juan Uribe had a series winning homer to Brooks Conrad's errors all the way back to blowing the 2-0 lead in the 1996 World Series. So on the one hand, it's very strange that a team this mediocre in the regular season that was missing its best player would end up winning the title. But on the other hand, we get one of these once every decade. You know, we get the the Giants in 2014 or the Cardinals in 2006, and that ends up happening. So in the broad arc of of baseball history, it makes sense. But if you look at all of the Atlanta teams over the last 25 years, this wouldn't be in the top half of teams you'd pick to actually win the World Series. Yeah, and so 
saying all that is going to make it sound like we're denigrating what the the brain. No, I think it's great. I, yeah, I think, I think actually the opposite that the fact that their regular season totals on the aggregate were so unimpressive really underlines how well they played this year or how well they played this postseason. how, you know, you see guys step up, you saw that bullpen really, really gel. You saw Brian Snicker push all the right buttons. They beat uh, the, three really good teams handily, and they never lost. They never lost two games in a row all postseason. The only yeah. time they ever trailed in a series was one zero in the NLDS. Like this was a team that was mediocre for six months and then dominant in October. And I think that's worth a- appreciating that baseball is a sport that allows that kind of thing to happen. Yeah, it's. I mean, it happens in other sports. I think it, the, what this reminds me of is like the '95 New Jersey Devils that. Uh, they didn't really come out of nowhere. They had been in the the conference final the year before, but they beat um they beat a series of of uh, of favorites on their road to the to the Stanley Cup, and it's sort of a, a surprising result. Um, and that's sort of what that's what this reminds me of. Also, in terms of like sheer partisan interest as a, a Phillies and Flyers fan, uh, <laughs> not you know it's not going to be the happiest result. My my mother in law uh, who lives down in in Cobb County is over the moon. Uh, so I'd like to, you know, I'm, I'm really happy for her. If, if nothing else, my other partisan interests, uh, aside. Um, but as far as the, the Braves playing really well, it's because they played so well. This is, this entire postseason has been about not giving, like it's, it's been about delivering the killing stroke when you have the opportunity. And, you know, we saw the Giants let the Dodgers up off the mat. You know, the Rays let the Red Sox up off the mat. The The Red Sox let the, the Astros up off the mat. And the Braves finished the job against the Astros when as recently as like the second inning of game six, it felt like the Astros were on their way to to tying it, sending it to a game seven and maybe winning it. And then three one comes becomes as uh, becomes as indelible in the culture as 28 to three. and. They didn't give them the set. They didn't give Houston a second chance. And so, you know, this World Series ended up being less dramatic than like 2016 or 17. Or, you know, we were talking about 2019 went um, went seven games. 2018 and 2020 were both both had a lot of really memorable, interesting games. You know, this this series had a couple of them, but the Braves were just if the Braves had played like 7% worse, then we probably would have had a more fun World Series. But that's not their job. Their job is to to bring home the title, and they did. Yeah, I thought about the 2019 Nationals a lot. Both NL East teams, both teams that were fairly mediocre in the regular season, and then ended up winning the World Series. And they did it in very different ways. The Nationals had a comeback against Josh Hader, and then a comeback against Clayton Kershaw, and then a comeback uh, against... Uh, Zach Granke and Will Harris, all of them in winner go home games. So they were living on a tightrope for a month, whereas Atlanta just kind of took care of business. And from a, a neutral perspective, I enjoyed watching the Nationals run more just because there was so much late game drama. But it's not like Atlanta didn't have late game drama. They just prevented it, like Tyler Matzek and the closer against the Dodgers, like they could have given up that lead and had a more exciting end game. But Tyler Matzik just came in and struck three guys out. And then the next six guys were retired too. So the bullpen was so good. They prevented that kind of chaos at the end of games. But just to underscore how remarkable Atlanta's pitching was, they shut out the Astros twice in this series since 2015 with this incarnation of the Astros. They have only been shut out in two other playoff games that entire time. 
So the Astros offense, which had scored, I think, 6.7 runs per game entering the World Series, outside one inning against Freed, which we talked about involved just like a lot of seeing eye singles or bloop infield dribblers. And then one game in game five, Houston didn't really score at all this series. They put guys on base, but they couldn't drive them in. They had only a couple home runs all series, whereas Atlanta seemed to hit a couple every single game. So it was a pretty thorough dismantling of a team that has been one of the best in the majors for half a decade running. Yeah, it's uh, two things come out, um, come to mind. One is if you follow Sarah Langs from MLB on Twitter, she's been going on after every single game about teams that, that out home or their opponents or, or mm-hmm. score first or, are whatever the number is. I think the final like out homering total ended up being something like 25 to two. Uh, yeah. And, and the, the Braves just mashed. I mean, they, they scored runs quickly and throughout the lineup. And that's, that was the difference. The other thing is in their four losses, the Astros ended up being one for 22 with runners in scoring position. And that's, I mean, if you want to look at one number that, that switched, that, that changes series, you know, they, I think they got comprehensively outplayed, but at the same time, they were a couple clutch hits from taking this to game seven and the Braves just never let them get the opportunity. And the Astros, you know, Jordan Alvarez didn't have a good world series. Alex Bregman is, I mean, we're going to find out more about what exactly he hurt. I'm sure like we're, I'm sure we're, we're 24 hours from a headline involving Alex Bregman and off season surgery of some kind because he did not look like himself and that, you know, that took the, the entire lineup apart. They, you know, Jason Castro went on the, the COVID list, which weakened their bench. And it's just one thing after another, they just couldn't get a hit. And it's, uh, you know, one for 22 with runners in scoring position and four losses that, that tells a whole story for me. Atlanta in the series had a three Oh three team on base percentage and Houston was at two ninety eight. So there's not a huge difference there. But Atlanta slugged 443. You know what Houston slugged? 299. Okay, I was going to guess something with a one. Yeah, Uh, Houston slugged 299 and Atlanta slugged 443. So even though they reached base at about the same clip, Atlanta did so with home runs and doubles and Houston just did not. And it's hard to to win in October stringing three singles in a row together when you're going up against pitchers like Matzik who can strike you out with runners uh, on third base. Yeah, and I, that that brings up the let's talk about Solaire's home runs because I think that was the that was one of the two big moments. I mean, the seven nothing shutout where the the winning run was scored early. I don't know that there's a whole lot to talk about narratively just from Game Six in in particular, but uh, the Solaire home run over the the train tracks with the roof open. I I love it. I've seen that happen twice in person with the roof open and somebody hits a ball out of the stadium uh, at Minute Maid. And I'm glad we got to see it in the World Series after they finally opened the roof after years and years of, of playing with the roof closed. Um, but, I mean, Solaire was one of the guy, one of the the couple guys who I think had a chance to do that and, and he delivered. And that just seemed like it. That, like it... After after game five, Carlos Correa was talking about how they had come back from three nothing down to tie the series against the Rays last year, and they've been in this position before. And yeah, you know, I started to believe them that that they were in a they were actually not in a bad situation after game five. And then they left the men on them in the first first inning. Solaire hit the home run. And it just seemed like all the air went out of the stadium after that. I knew Solaire's at bat would be the final one before. 
a commercial break either way because there were two men on two outs and Freddie Freeman was up next. So I knew if Soler reached via a walk or, or a single or something, then they would bring in a lefty to face Freeman. So I knew my dog needed to go out for her, <laughs> her nighttime uh, trip to the outdoors. And so I was like, okay, this is going to be the last batter. I got her leash on. I got my shoes on, which she knows means we're about to go outside Except then Solaire's at bat lasted eight pitches. So after every foul ball, it'd be like, okay, next pitch. And then we'll go outside. And she started whining. And then finally I said, okay, one more pitch and I'll go out no matter what. I, I can rewind if I need to. I've been making you wait too long. And then Solaire hit a ball 650 feet. And uh, I think we were done outside by the time he had crossed the bases because I just left as soon as the ball sailed over. And he took his time to admire it because if you hit a ball that far in such an important situation, yeah, you you deserve to admire it. So I'm really glad I didn't miss it and decided to say that one extra pitch because it was kind of at that moment that you knew the series was over. Yeah, you had to go walk your dog and then you came back and watched the Braves dog walk the Astros for the the rest of the night. I'm really glad you made that because as you were started that sentence, I I knew where you were going. I am glad that like Freddie Freeman got a couple moments later in this game too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've been making the joke every time he hit a homer this postseason that, oh, that's his last homer in an Atlanta uniform. And I would be absolutely shocked if that's actually the case. But it was nice to see the guy who has defined this era of Atlanta baseball come through like that just to add some insurance at the end. He also had some bigger moments earlier in this postseason, like homering off Hader to send them to the NLCS. But he also had the homer uh, in game five that put them ahead. And he thought, oh, th- this could actually win the series. That didn't end up being the case, but he he was pretty strong all postseason long. Yeah, he was my, you know, this is always a great thing. It's they show in rapid fire, like four different players reactions to the last out and Freeman caught the, uh, caught the ball at first base and then you could just see him like unhinge his jaw like like <laughs> 30 seconds after <clears throat> after the last out the the biggest thought in my mind was wow Freddie Freeman has huge teeth and that's you know just because of how big he was smiling and so I'm really happy for him I mean, somebody who's you know been in that organization uh his entire career and uh, played through he was the one guy that they kept when they tore down the, the yeah. team from the in the early 2010s and got rid of Kimbrell and Simmons and, and Jason Hayward. And, uh, you know, if this is, if this is his last, uh, go around in a Braves uniform, which like you, I'm, I'm more confident the Braves will bring him back than the Astros with, with Correa. Um, just seems like he doesn't want to play anywhere else. And, uh, but if this is his last go around that there's no better way to go out, you know, it's like our pools in 2011, like in terms of somebody who's, really meant so much to that team who's become so identified with that team uh, and is still mid career. Uh, but you know, we'll see how that goes in the, in the off season for now. I'm, I'm sure you know, he's uh, his free agency is the, the last thing on his mind right now. I would go, we'll, we'll preview the off season more next week. I would go so far as to say, I am more confident that he will resign with his team than any of the other top free agents on the market. But we can talk more about that next week. That's probably true. Yeah. Um, the other thing, the other play, uh, this was in the midst of that first inning rally that wasn't uh, by the Astros. A weird play at first base involving Freeman and Max Freed, where uh, Freed took took his eye off the off of Freeman as Freeman was preparing to give him the shovel pass as he was going to first base. Uh, ended up 
uh, sort of tripping and dragging his foot in front of the bag where it was stepped on by Michael Brantley. Uh, I watched that. I mean, they kept showing it because he stayed in the game, but like I was thinking like Willis McGahee or like uh, Eduardo Da Silva injury for for you soccer fans. It looked ugly and he came back up and was throwing harder than ever. So Max Fried's rubber ankle uh, was was pivotal. Uh, you know, I expected him to be going to the hospital to to have his foot amputated and he came back out there and just kept putting up zeros. Between what happened with Freed in this game and Charlie Morton striking out Jose Altuve in game one, maybe the secret sauce is getting your pitcher's leg grievously injured <laughs> and then they d- don't allow any runs. Yeah. Maybe this is something they should install in, <clears throat> in Truist Park, like a, not like the full batting practice pitcher screen, but like maybe something that's like 18 inches high out, out in front of the mound just to ward off comebackers. I guess this wouldn't have, uh, done anything for this play at first. Maybe Hello. he can, maybe you can just have the baseball players wear shin guards. Yeah. I mean, you still see these bad injuries in, um, in soccer all the time and they wear shin guards. I mean, the, the real solution is, and I don't know why they don't, why this hasn't happened like three or four years ago is to have the slow pitch softball version of first base where you have a, like a mirror base in foul territory. That's, the the batter runners and then the the first baseman can have the the base that's in fair territory. I don't I don't know why we haven't done that five years ago. Like it could prevent so many of these scary plays, but maybe without that shot of adrenaline, Max Fried would have would have <laughs> given up that four run first inning, and we'd be we wouldn't be recording now. We'd be uh, furiously writing to try to preview a game seven. Yeah, I think that's a, a smart and probably simple addition. And it's something that works very well in slow pitch softball leagues. Maybe they don't want to do it because it just so screams slow pitch softball and they want to be fast pitch kinetic baseball. But I think it would be a smart addition could also cut down on like, I'm not sure if the Max Muncy injury at the end of the regular season would have happened if the runner hadn't been, you know, sprinting directly at him, but instead had been at an angle going toward an outside base. But I think from Freed's perspective, this was a fantastic performance and kind of what Atlanta was expecting out of him entering the playoffs. He pitched really well against Milwaukee in his NLDS start, but he hadn't been as solid uh, since then. And and this was a pitcher who was one of the best in the entire major leagues over the second half of the season. He was really not just great on an individual game basis, but very consistent, never allowing more than a couple runs. So to see him struggle against the Dodgers and struggle in game two this series was a surprise. And this was important, especially because Charlie Morton was out. Mike Soroka has been injured all year. They didn't have those other stars to turn to necessarily. So it was important that he pitched like the ace that they were expecting. That's really what they needed. And what, and I touched on this in my my postmortem about the Astros. It's what Houston didn't have is both of these teams were out a couple of of number one or strong number two type pitchers. And Freed was the guy that that Atlanta needed to step up. And, you know, in, in some ways he did in game two just by getting through and and eating those innings and keeping some pressure off the bullpen. Uh but tonight or tonight, last night he was just awesome. I mean, that's everything you want from, I mean, that's Tom Glavin, 1995 stuff. Um, you know, six strikeouts, no walks, only one line drive allowed, probably could have gone longer, only through 74 pitches, but with no tomorrow, you could just lean on that bullpen and, and ride it out. Um, it's that's 
that's an ace performance. And that's the kind of thing that so few teams have been getting with the weird pitcher ramp ups and the fatigue and injuries that have been coming off the back of the, the 2020 season. Um, and you know, the Astros just couldn't get a solid start. And that, you know, in addition to the to runners in scoring position uh, thing, that was one of the the big differentiators because the the Braves got that not just out of Freed, but but out of Ian Anderson as well. Um, so, not that they needed the the literal shutout if they're going to score seven runs, but uh, that was huge, and that was, I think, always the potential that was there, and he he really delivered on it after a really hairy first inning. The other, I guess, takeaway from this Atlanta victory that we should talk about is if there's an overarching narrative for other teams, which we usually get from the World Series winner, you get in 2016 and 2017, let's try tanking because that kind of rebuild works. In 2020, it's okay, let's try and be like the Dodgers, which so many teams are trying to do with their method of sustainable success year after year. On the one hand, you wouldn't think teams would try to replicate Atlanta because they were somewhat of a fluke. They won only 88 regular season games. But on the other hand, I think they did one very important thing, and I focused my column on this last night, which is actually try at the deadline. They had a below 500 record at the end of July. They weren't in playoff position, but they saw how weak the Mets were. Sorry, Bobby. And they knew they had a chance. So even though they didn't make like the Trey Turner, Max Scherzer splash, they completely revamped their outfield. And that was their biggest area of weakness on the roster. Obviously, it paid off with Solaire's MVP and uh, and Rosario performing all playoffs and Peterson and Duvall. And collectively, over the entire postseason, that quartet hit about as well as Manny Machado did this year, or Nelson Cruz, like star-level hitters, and you're getting that out of three lineup spots plus a pinch hitter spot against the toughest pitchers uh, that the postseason has to offer. I just think that if there's a lesson to be taken away here, it's actually try. Cleveland had a better record than Atlanta at the trade deadline and still gave them Eddie Rosario for salary relief. And of course, Cleveland was in a different situation because the White Sox were well ahead, but they could have contended for a wild card. And maybe it doesn't work, but you never know what will happen as long as you enter the playoff field. So I think teams should take that lesson. I'm not sure if they will, but Atlanta would not have probably made the playoffs at the very least they definitely would not have won the world series if not for rosario and duvall and peterson and solaire and I, I think you have to commend the front office for taking those active steps to try to improve the roster and win you think about how little those moves cost atlanta too that there there's a different going in at the deadline means something different for the dodgers going out and getting scherzer and and turner than it does for atlanta a team that's just basically trying to stay to to stay afloat just in case the Mets and Phillies in the remote possibility that both of those teams just completely shit the bed down the stretch. Uh, they were there to pick up the pieces. And the Rosario trade, I mean, everything that's happened to Eddie Rosario since the end of last season really speaks to the availability of guys with quality major league skills. That if Yeah, he you're should willing, still be on the Twins. Yeah, it's if you're willing to just fork over not even that much in the grand scheme of things in in salary you can get a guy you know Rosario is not the player we saw uh throughout the postseason he's got a lot of flaws I you know he's not a franchise corner outfielder and if I were a team in the twins position I would probably try to upgrade on him uh but he can hit like we've always known he can hit he's just been a very good version 
of himself this postseason. Uh, and you can get a guy like that to just fill a, fill a hole, to fill, you know, turn a, a D minus position into a B minus position. And they did that getting those four outfielders. They could shuffle around that. They could, you know, use Solaire to hide Peterson's flaws. If you know how to, how to deploy those, those kind of players, you can get a lot of mileage for, for not a lot of, of, uh, of cost in terms of salary or prospects. And, you know, not every Alex Anthopoulos move, worked out this season you know we're not talking about the the Richard Rodriguez trade for instance um which uh you know we're not because he wasn't even on the postseason roster so but if you make those moves you give yourself a chance and so I that's the the lesson that I hope teams take from uh take from the Braves which is you know if you see a chance there are ways to keep yourself in the fight without without really sacrificing that much for the future I'll say I'm not optimistic that they will take that lesson because what was the lesson of the 2018 Red Sox? It was spend because they had the highest payroll in the majors, but that's because they spent on players like David Price and J.D. Martinez, who were very important members of that team. And then, you know, now Dave Dombrowski is criticized for it. Thus, the rant I went on on this podcast a few weeks ago. But I think I think that it's good going forward only so that then, you know, in 2023, the next baseball season we have after the lockout, uh, when a team is 52 and 48 <laughs> at the deadline, then we as analysts and, and fans can point to their front office and say, hey, Atlanta just did this. Why don't we try? Why don't, at the very least, add a couple platoon players to try and help us go on a run down the stretch? Don't sell because we're three games out of a playoff spot, there's enough time to make that up. So I think they're going to be a story that we can point to a lot in the future as an example of the positives that can happen when you do try, which sounds simple, but not enough baseball teams try these days. Yeah, and maybe there's a little bit of Maslow's hammer to this, but I ended up coming to a similar conclusion about the Astros, that this was... You know, a 95-win team, but you stack it up against the teams that the Astros put out from 2017 to 2019, and there's a difference. There's a you know a, a perceptible difference between a 95-win team and a 107-win team, even within the context of a best-of-seven playoff series. And the Astros teams that made it this far in the past had weapons that this team didn't, and they missed... You know, they missed Justin Verlander and Garrett Cole and Charlie Morton and and Dallas Keuchel and, you know, not those specific guys, but what the Astros kept doing, even after they won the World Series in, in 2017, is they kept upgrading and they've just sort of drifted back a little bit. And my fear is that, you know, you made the joke about 2023, is the team that's going to be in first place isn't going to make the the Max Scherzer, or, um, um, Trey Turner trade. Um, because they figure, oh, well, with a 16-team playoff, we're just going to have a best-of-three well, series against the team that's now 44 and 56 and is now trading for the equivalent of Eddie Rosario two, two years down the line. Um, and so it's a crapshoot, and it's not worth spending either in prospects or in, or in money to try to upgrade in the short term. And this year, and by the way, last year with the Rays, like as much as I'm just, I'll just be completely honest here. I believe in this year's like world series loser postmortem a little bit less than, than last year's because I, I think this Astros team was good enough to win a title. They just ran into a, a 
a hotter team that got out and they got outplayed and it happens. And so I'm just sort of looking around for, for straws to pick at. But last year with the Rays, like they, I said this at the time, they got to game six of the World Series against one of the best baseball teams ever assembled. And if they had added Manny Machado or Anthony Rendon and Bryce Harper as free agents and, and replaced Joey Wendell and Manny Margot in, the, in that lineup, they wouldn't have had a league average payroll. They still would have uh, been like in the, I think, around 20th. And they could have added two superstars to a lineup that was already good enough for the one seed in the AL, already good enough to get them to the World Series. And that's why they lost. And I think there's a, a similar argument to be made about this year's Astros, not to the same extent, obviously, but they were a, a really good playoff team. They're probably one of the four or five best teams in the league this year, but there are upgrades you can make to, to take some of the uncertainty to some, you know, some of the bad luck, uh, the vulnerability to bad luck out of a playoff series. And they miss those guys. And, you know, maybe it's different if Verlander's not hurt, if, if Lance McCullers isn't hurt, if Bregman's hitting, you know, but that's the you can buy insurance against those things to a certain extent. And uh, this year's Astros didn't. And I, I hope that that's a lesson that they take, that the Dodgers take, that the Yankees take, that all these big market teams that that uh, that could be tempted to just get into the playoffs and take their chances. Uh, I hope that's something they take to take to heart going forward, because we've seen you know, we've seen the impact of that in the past past few postseasons. So what's your view on the future of the Astros? They've made five straight championship series three world series on that segue, span Zach. yeah thank you you wrote about how carlos correa is probably done as an astro earlier this week brent strom announced last night that he is not returning as pitching coach so what's your view on you know can they make it back to another championship series next year i have a hard time imagining this team without without correa i think more than anybody else he come he's come to define this team um I don't know, maybe that's just because like I had just moved to Houston when when that 2015 team was getting off the ground and, and Correa came up a, a about that time and like this was how you knew that 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 era was good. And the past seven years have been so much of the of that has been about Correa. And I think even if they replace him in terms of production, I think there's gonna be a huge like psychological void or emotional void uh with that team, particularly you know, if they don't go out and get a like for like guy, if, if they don't go out and get Trevor Story or, or Corey Seager uh, to fill that hole. But I think they, Correa is not, he's not actually making that much money this year. So in terms of, of coming off the books, Verlander's coming off the books. Uh, so if they want to, they can reload, but they've sort of gutted that farm system in order to make the, you know, make the, the Granky trade, for instance, and a couple other, um, color couple other acquisitions. I think this is just going to be a transitional year that, you know, we're going to, and I said something similar about the Dodgers is that they're, they're going to be identity concerns. I think in addition to trying to replace a lot of these people on the field, a lot of these really good players that, that they've had to cycle through. I mean, we talked about that, you know, I, I've been going on about them needing a number one starter. Like they really missed George Springer in this series too. Uh, and, and the more you churn, like the ability to win sustainably, which is the, the buzzword, you know, we've seen the Dodgers do this successfully. It's the ability to, to churn those players and to, to know, make good decisions about who you're bringing back and who you're letting go and scout. Well, and you know, the Astros have just had so many more chances to, 
to find those homegrown stars than than uh, a lot of other teams. I wonder how good they are at scouting for the next, you know, the next Correa, the next Springer. So I think this could be the last dominant Astros team in the AL West because um, I'm fairly optimistic about the Mariners next year. Uh, and I think down the road, we're going to see, you know, we're going to see the Rangers bounce back. And so this division could get a little bit tougher than it's been in the past couple of years. And I mean, but Correa and Strom and Brent Strom, like in terms of pitching coaches who mean a lot to, to their team, he's up there. He's been such a huge part of, of that club for the entire run. He's been there since 2014. It's always, it's always sort of amused me to see him going around as it's the Astros were like this space age team with, you know, with the McKinsey guys and the NASA guys and in the front office and, and AJ Hinch, who, who was sort of the, the, the front office whisperer in the dugout. And then they've got the old cranky old school pitching coach. Who's all the while a genius at, at developing pitchers. And he's been a huge part of their success. And again, the Astros seem to be confident that they've got some, that they've got a couple young coaches coming up who can replace him, uh, in that role. But what does that mean? To the team in terms of, of identity and mentality that he's not going to be back. And, you know, I've got questions about that just, just as with Correa. So that's a long way of saying, I don't know. <laughs> like it's, they're going to have a, a, a lot of rebuilding to do, uh, this off season and the impending work stoppage, if it happens is only going to complicate that. Cause that makes it very, very difficult to, if we don't even know the rules by which these teams are going to have to try to rebuild, uh, it makes it very difficult to pick out a path for them if they decide to move on from from Korea. Yeah, and I, I think their farm system is fairly degraded compared to where it was a couple of years ago, as you mentioned. But their player development system is still very good. Someone like Luis Garcia is huge, and he's very young and under team control for a while. And if they can keep churning out pitchers like that, they will be in much better shape going forward. Like you, I am also just really curious to see what they do with all the money coming off their books. You mentioned Verlander. It's also Zach Granke, who has a 30 plus million dollar salary, and he's a free agent. So add up Verlander and Granke, add up Carlos Correa, and then subtract some arbitration raises, and they have something like $50 million coming off the books, which would put them at their lowest payroll since 2017, which is back when Bregman and Correa were still uh, under pre-arb deals. So they've had a, a top 10 payroll four years in a row now if they want to maintain that status then they have some money to splash around and i think it would behoove them to do so and continue to maximize the window while it's still open while altuve is still producing at least close to his prime numbers while bregman presumably is bouncing back while jordan alvarez is still cheap so i think they'll still be a good team but I also agree that maybe their days of winning 100 games and just clearly being the class of the league are probably done. I wrote this a year ago. I think you also wrote this a year ago. Maybe we were a bit premature, but it's also easier to see the end than the start at this point, I think. It's just tough. It's tough to win consistently as long as the Astros have. And, you know, I've been looking for the end of this run. I mean, the same with the Dodgers. To I mean, that's what I wrote in, in their obit this year is that you know, I think they're going to be good. I think they're probably going to win the win the division again next year. But you can you could see you could see this team showing its age, and uh, there's going to be a lot of important decisions made this year, not just by the front office, but but by Jim Crane. Like I think 
a lot of the direction of this franchise for the next five years is going to be determined by how much he's willing to spend. Just like, I mean, the the Verlander trade in, in mid-2017, like that was an ownership thing and that they didn't have to make that move. And I think like that's what put them over the top and what that's what kept them there uh, for the past five years. And so they're going to need a, they're going to need ownership to step up again. Uh, and I don't know how much I trust any ownership group to, to do that in this climate. So we'll see. It's, it's, it's going to be an interesting off season. Um, so let's, you wanted to do playoff superlatives. You wanted to do a, a, a list of, of takeaways from, you know, it's been sort of a scattershot postseason. You know, we, it's, it's a long month and I think it's so easy to focus on what just happened that you forget like Chris Taylor's walk-off home run against the Cardinals. That only happened a month ago, but a lot of playoff games. <laughs> when I when I was writing about the Astros needing a number one starter last night, I was like, they miss Garrett Cole. Did Garrett Cole pitch this postseason? <laughs> like I had almost Not very long. <laughs> I had almost literally forgotten about him in the wild card game, which I'm sure he would rather everybody forget about how he pitched in the wild card game. Um so the first one we're going to start off with is the the holistic playoff MVP. We sort of were uh, AJ Casvel, a friend of the show from from MLB.com, brought up uh, uh, the other day a, the idea of like a playoffs long Con Smythe Trophy type MVP, which I'm calling the Lon Smythe Trophy after Lonnie Smith, who won four pennants with four different teams in three World Series in the 80s and 90s. Uh, I'm very proud of that. So who is our our holistic playoff MVP? Uh, yeah, we both agreed on this one. It is Eddie Rosario. He hit agreed on a lot over the entire postseason. 383, 456, 617. That is an OPS north of 1,000. Freddie Freeman also had an OPS north of 1,000, but not as good as Rosario. And I think given the timeliness of Rosario's hits, most notably the winner against Walker Bueller in the NLCS, and just how it seemed like he never made two outs in a row from the NLCS onward. I think he's a pretty easy choice for this made-up award. Yeah, the way he dominated the NLCS and then also had a really good World Series, too. And like you said, just in the middle of everything, this feels like a, a very, very easy uh, pick. The The only other person I even considered was Tyler Matzik, who, mm-hmm. against all odds, led all MLB pitchers with three wins this postseason. Nobody else had more than two, maybe because no starter lasted long enough to, to win more than two games. Um, so Rosario is our guy breakout star. This is, this is, I think the most interesting part of most postseasons where you see whether it's somebody completely off the radar, like Randy Rose Reina or somebody like Juan Soto 2019 or Bumgarner 2014, where this is a, an established young player. Who's, who's well-known in baseball circles, who becomes, like a national celebrity based on on their performance in the postseason. And I don't know. I think there's a couple options for this. But again, we went with the the same guy. And that is Logan Webb. I think even diehard baseball fans might have been hard pressed to know much about Logan Webb. Not, not even a season ago, as recently as like June. But he was so good down the stretch. And then in two starts against the Dodgers, uh, in which he threw a combined 14 and two-thirds innings, 17 strikeouts, only one run allowed, and especially in a postseason in which it seemed like no starter went deep, or if they did, it was unique. Like, Framber Valdez had that one great start against Boston, but lasted like two innings in every other start. Logan Webb re- really stood out, and that was... Uh, we, we will award many more superlatives to that 
Dodgers-Giants series, and Logan Webb, I think, was the star of it, even if his team didn't win. It also probably helps from a breakout perspective that he does have the aesthetic similarity to Jesse Plemons, which I think helps with the casual mm-hmm. viewers. Uh, Logan Webb is our breakout star. I think that series is even more impressive now, just looking at what happened to, to Framber Valdez and, and Max Scherzer and some of the other top pitchers down the stretch, how they struggled to put together two strong starts in a row. And Webb was just chucking like a, like a traditional playoff ace, you know, going deep into, into games. And maybe he would have worn out if the Giants had advanced, but that stands in such stark contrast to the rest of the, the pitching that, that we saw this postseason. I think personally, he was my favorite player to watch this postseason uh, on any team at any position. And I don't think it's particularly close. I really loved watching uh, his two starts this postseason, including our best game of the postseason, which is Dodgers Giants game five. Somehow, after the wild card round, the only sudden death game we got all postseason, which I think contributes to the sense that it was kind of a mediocre month of baseball compared to other postseasons we've seen. There weren't any sweeps, but there were a lot of 3-1 and 4-2 series. Mm -hmm. But Dodgers-Giants stood out. That was the most notable series that we were all hoping for entering the playoffs in it. Fulfilled our expectations. Game five was a one-run game featuring great performances from guys like Logan Webb, featuring a clutch hit from Cody Bellinger, featuring a controversial game-ending check swing call. So yeah, this was a pretty clear best game for me from the postseason. Close the whole way. It and really in that that way that only baseball can can do where every pitch felt like it was going to determine the the course of the season um and you knew you know sort of game seven 1991 vibes that that if you could score a run that could be the the difference um and we also had i mean it was the two best teams in baseball this year we had a full off day before that with no other games to get hyped up for it it was that felt like an event more than any other game of this postseason, including the World Series, including the wildcard games. And uh, I think it delivered and then some. I, I think, like, I felt, you know, um, emotionally moved by that game. I'm not too not too proud to say uh, in a way that no other game really got to me. And there, and there were other really good games throughout this postseason. So best series is up next. I think we both agree for all the reasons we mentioned. It is Dodgers-Giants. So we also have best series non-Dodgers-Giants edition. What's your choice? I'm going to go with Rays Red Sox in the ALDS. And the reason for that is there were narrative swings. So, you know, so many of these series that ended up being four games in a best five or six games in a best of seven, you know, I think come to think of it, every series the Braves played, uh, it, it, it felt like what it felt like Atlanta in particular led the whole way. And there was just the a question of will the, will their opponent catch up? And, and the answer in every case was no. But this series, I thought the the Rays had it into the in the bag well into to game two. And then they just completely collapsed. We had the 13 inning game, uh, game three with controversial moments, and then another close game the with you know with wild swings the the, the following night. So it and this was before I think I was really convinced by the Red Sox, too. I, I thought that that the Rays were gonna just steamroll them, and that's how it looked for for a while. And the Red Sox turned into sort of a Braves team in miniature that was buoyed by by smart midseason acquisitions, got hot at the right time, uh, and turned out to be really dangerous. And that's, you know, we really got to know this this Red Sox team that, you know, I probably didn't pay enough attention to in the regular season. So that was 
I I really enjoyed that that series probably more than any other non Giants you know non Dodgers Giants division. That thirteen inning game was somehow the only extra innings game all postseason long. There were a couple other Red Sox games that felt like extra innings <laughs> uh, that that ended up I guess only going nine. But yeah, so my choice for best non Dodgers Giants series is Dodgers Atlanta in the NLCS. None of those games went to extra innings, but a lot of them were really close. The first two ended in Atlanta walk-offs. Game three is, I think, up there in best games of the postseason. That was the Cody Bellinger home run that shocked everyone. And game six was also really fun with Matzik coming in and striking out Pujol, Souza, and Betts. That was a really tense moment as well. So especially given the narrative implications of that series in which Atlanta was leading three to one, but they had also been leading three to one last year and blew that lead. So could they hold on to it this time? I think that series uh, is my favorite behind Dodgers giants. All right. What's your, your most memorable moment? My most memorable moment. It's kind of hard to choose between a couple Jorge Soler moments. Um, So either Swanson and Soler going back to back in game four of the world series, because that's the moment when it felt like the World Series really flipped to me. Houston seemed on track to tie the series 2-2. Two to two. Like I said, it was a surprise that they had only scored two runs that game, but it still seemed like they were in control. They were about to hand the ball off to you know Graveman and Presley. All they needed to do was get through the bottom of Atlanta's order with Christian Javier, who had been great all postseason long. And then Swanson ties it. Soler uh, takes the lead a couple moments later. That was a pretty memorable home run with Jordan Alvarez crashing into the outfield wall. And that moment was like, oh, wow, Atlanta's really going to do this. And then the Solaire game six home run, just because of how far he hit that ball. And if game four was, oh, they're going to do this game six was okay. This is over. Yeah, this is over. It. I would struggle to think of a clearer turning point than, than that back-to-back home run of uh, running game four. Uh, that, some sometimes these moments just reveal themselves to you. I I think the the pick a Solaire home run uh, is good. Even I'm leading off game one with that home run. Like that was just coming out and punching Houston in the face. I think that really set the tone for uh, for the entire series. Personally, the image that's going to stick out in my head the most is uh, from um, game three of the uh, from of the ALDS from that race Red Sox series uh Nick Pavetta coming in in extra innings somebody who across multiple organizations has been talented but frustrating uh just the way he had his curveball that night it was one of the best pitching performances of, of the postseason for me and then this you know big skinny Canadian who who has his hat pulled down over his over his eyes doesn't show a ton of emotion gets the big strikeout and like freaks out on his way off the mound like looking like Kevin Garnett on after um after getting a big block in a playoff game and you could just his attitude coming off the mound really elevated the the emotional stakes of that game for me I, I was I was really impressed by by how he pitched, but also like those are the moments that really make you feel like this is important. Um, so that's probably that's probably my favorite moment from this postseason. I could also go with the the end of the Santa Ana wins game, um, where I really thought that that um, that shutout loss in LA, where the wind came in and knocked down Gavin Lux's home run in the ninth or would be home run in the ninth inning. Uh, you know. I, I thought the Giants had that series in the bag because it seemed like the Dodgers were just cursed at that point. 
I just looked up the championship win probability added leaderboard for this postseason. I promise I did not look at that before choosing what I did for this pick. Number one, most important play of the postseason, Soler's homer in game six. Number two, Dansby Swanson's homer in game four. Number three, Jorge Soler's homer in game four. So really, I just picked the three statistically most important You've plays. You've got a nose for this stuff, man. Yeah. It's you're you're the walking databanks. Um all right, let's go to weirdest moment because yeah, we said most memorable. I don't know that that anything is going to top Hunter yeah. Renfro saving yeah. the Red Sox season by hip checking a ball into his own bullpen. I mean, that's a we talk about the second screen experience. That was a great night to be on Twitter because nobody had any clue what the rules even were in that situation. And honestly, I've got some sympathy for the rule book because this is not something that I feel like you ought to have to anticipate. But just a perfect confluence of of play and player and situation, like how many outfield walls are short enough that that would even be an issue. That was just a, a very strange moment. And then, you know, we had another controversial uh, uh, replay in the in the next game, and it just it just compounded. So that's gonna go down in in my memory as the weirdest moment of this postseason. Definitely the best choice here. I want to give an honorable mention to the Martin Maldonado walk in Game so 5 cool. of the World Series. Really reminiscent of you Darvish's walk in 2017 against the Cubs. Just a guy, and it's kind of mean to compare Martin Maldonado to a pitcher, but he kind of hit like one this postseason. Just a guy who all he wants to do is walk and not have to swing the bat with the bases loaded. All the pitcher needs to do is throw strikes, and they just can't. And Maldonado, like Darvish before, did some some wiggling and fake bunting, even though you knew he wasn't going to bunt, just to try and mess plate. with the pitcher's yeah. command. And I love that kind of thing, It especially when it works. And we probably won't see as much of that going forward when, when we lose uh, pitcher hitting and have a universal DH. But Maldonado proved you can still have it if you have a catcher who's hitting like a pitcher. And... Like if Houston had come back in the series, that would have been the turning point because that tied it up against Atlanta's vaunted bullpen. Marwin Gonzalez had the the game winning hit right afterwards. So that walk and and Darvish's walk really coalesce in my mind as like you don't just have to stand there; you can try and mess with the pitcher too. Yeah, it's I, I said it was just genius at the time. Um, yeah, that's it's one of the reasons why you put Maldonado in the lineup when he's hitting one hundred is because. You think about this as a defensive thing, the way, you know, the way he'd handle a, a staff, it's so valuable, but it's also so savvy to know you're up there against a fastball slider guy and you can, you know, you can mess with these guys and, and they rely like the modern relief pitcher relies on the hitter to get himself out so much that if you just go out there and change the rules of the game without, uh, you know, without giving him a chance to adjust in a high pressure situation after ball one, all of a sudden the strike zone starts to feel smaller. I mean, that was just absolutely perfectly executed. Uh, I loved every second of it. And I think you're right. If the Astros had come back to win, that would have been the turning point of the series. Next on the list, we have most annoying storyline. I'm, I'm going to pick Smoltz versus analytics that, I would like to to be able to watch the marquee broadcast of the marquee events of the season without it turning into like old man yells at cloud. Uh, it's so joyless that entire it, it, instead instead of you know there's there's a lot about the modern evolution of the game that I don't like, but 
if I were in a position to, you know, our job is not to promote the product. Our our job is to, you know, we're we're third party uh, analysts, so I think we can afford to be a little bit more uh, unsparing in our criticism than somebody who's you know up there with the microphone for the official broadcast partner, just unable or unwilling to find anything to to be joyful about, um, and just upset that the game isn't isn't played the same way as when uh, when he played it's it's disappointing considering how many ex players are out there you know we saw adam wainwright for instance you know or aj Pierzynski, that booth in the uh in the astros white Sox series in the in the early rounds like just having a good time you know acting like they wanted to be there uh and i don't think that should be too much to ask for for the broadcast team in the world series my a uh, choice for this is something I wrote about earlier this postseason, which is time of game. The median game length for a nine-inning playoff game this year was more than three and a half hours. Don't need to get into a whole discourse around time zones and when games should start, because time of game, it doesn't matter what time zone you're in. A three-hour game is better for every time zone than a three-and-a-half-hour game. And if we can cut 20 to 30 minutes off of game times with a pitch clock, I think that is really necessary given the creep that we have seen going back decades, really, but especially in the last few seasons and the last few postseasons. The games just last so long. And I think especially when we have what we had in this World Series or this ALCS, when a lot of the games aren't actually that close, they just really drag. Yeah, that said, nobody wants to to take me up on my obvious solution, which is to roll back the United States, the map of the United States to where it was that 220 years ago. Um, okay. Uh, most specific thing that only you cared about. So I actually put this superlative in for you because I saw you talking about this on Twitter the other night, and I wanted to let you talk about the college world series as we talk about the world series. Yeah. When Kyle Wright came up big, uh, in his relief appearance in the world series, they asked Dansby Swanson about it. Obviously the two of them played together at Vanderbilt in 2015, uh, where they made it to the college world series final and lost. Uh, it's, I have no idea how to search for this. So I'm sort of hoping that somebody from like Elias Sports Bureau with better database searching skills than me uh, steps up and and ends up um, doing a, a comprehensive list of, of teammates who have played together in the College World Series and the actual World Series. Uh, I found a few, you know, Pat Burrell and Aubrey Huff went to the College World Series together in Miami and then... Uh, won a World Series together in San Francisco. Uh, my favorite is uh, the 1982 Texas Longhorns had Spike, um, Spike Owen, Roger Clemens, and Calvin Chiraldi, who all played together on the 1986 Red Sox as they went to the World Series. And then Chiraldi's and Clemens' sons uh, played together for Texas in the 2014 World Series, uh, along with Dansby Swanson and Vanderbilt. Uh, so far, I've been unable to find uh, teammates who have won titles together in both college and the pros, because right, Vandy won... Uh, the College World Series in 2014 with Swanson, but Wright was a freshman in 2015, so he wasn't around uh, on that excellent uh, 2014 Vandy pitching staff with Walker Bueller and Carson Fulmer, Hayden Stone, Adam Ravenel, all those guys. Shout out the the 2014 Vandy Commodores. Um, so absent a major contribution by a South Carolina Gamecock or, or a South Jersey boy, uh, this was what I really hung my hat on. 
really glad I cleared out for you there. The specific thing that I cared most about was Max Fried versus Alex Bregman, the first matchup in World Series history between a Jewish pitcher and a Jewish batter, between Fried winning the clincher and Jock Peterson now winning two World Series in a row with two different franchises. Big October for members of the tribe. Uh, Fried versus Bregman, I was kind of surprised to see that that was the first matchup between a uh, Jewish pitcher and bat- batter in World Series history, but historic nonetheless. So you have your college World Series. I have my Jewish ball players. <laughs> Both of us <laughs> coming out hard for our respective. I was going to say really <laughs> leaning into our interests, steering into the skid. That's yeah, I guess I, I'm I'm also a little surprised that we haven't had that until 2021, but I guess it requires a certain confluence of of uh, of events that that we haven't had but that that pamphlet from airplane is now i think a, a a weighty paperback at the very least so at least a novella yeah there we go um so you wanted to talk before we ended we've got not that much time and we'll get into this in depth next week uh about cba negotiations because all of, you know we've been joking about a lockout have we been uh, joking or have we been serious I've been about 45% serious. I think that like there's a serious take that I'm still developing. First of all, because I don't know what ownership gets by like why they would want to lock out when they're making so much money. Like, and why while they've got so much power and they've got all the cards. I guess like this is the time to to press home their advantage. Uh to to go back to that, you know, commentary about why the Braves won this World Series. Uh you gotta you got to kill your opponent while you have the upper hand, but uh, the CBA expires the first week of December. So that's going to, the next month, we're going to see a lot of headlines about that and it's going to impact free agency, the trade market. And, you know, like I said, when we were talking about the Astros, it's tough to see the path forward for teams that have a lot of work to do this off season when we don't know what the rules are. You know, at the very least, I expect free agent con- compensation rules to change. We could end up changing the entire system. Uh, if things go go south, and then there's a possibility for a work stoppage that could impact the the beginning of the 2022 season. You know, the, as far as joking about coming back in 2023, losing the entire season, I think there's next to a zero percent chance of, of losing a huge chunk of, of 2022. But you know, you'd uh, you wouldn't go broke betting on the most pessimistic outcome between labor and capital. Uh, in the United States over over the past couple generations. So I guess that that is something that we ought to be prepared for. And I think on a, a near-term perspective, we'll see a lot of reporting as the December deadline approaches on whether they'll come to a deal or probably more likely they won't come to a deal, but how far are they apart? Can they reach a deal by the time you know spring training is supposed to start? But I think on the near term over the next month, I'll be very interested to see if free agents sign, if trades are made, because theoretically, teams are open to do that and free agents have signed in november before we've seen monumental trades happen between now and when the winter meetings are scheduled to take place but will teams and agents and players want to go ahead with those typical transactions when they don't know what the economic infrastructure in the game is going to look like if the uh, competitive balance threshold changes will that affect how big free agent contracts work if there's a change to the arbitration system. Will players with under six years of service time become more or less valuable? And I think those variables are just unknown at the moment. So I wouldn't be surprised to see a really quiet November until those issues get worked out. And then 
teams and agents and, and front offices can negotiate with a better sense of what the next few years of the sport are going to look like. And that's why I think it's going to be quiet, not like in a, a pointed political, like personal freeze out or capital strike way. I just think both sides are going to want to know what the rules are going to be. And if that's going to change dramatically, uh, when the next CBA comes out, it just makes sense to to wait until you know what playing field you're on, or, or maybe not. I guess if you're convinced that uh, that one side or the other is going to completely upend the Scrabble board, then maybe you want to try to get something locked in, uh, locked in early. So that's something. Like I said, we're going to talk about that in greater depth in in our next show, uh, and that's something we're going to be covering at theRinger.com as these. Um, as this drags on and on and on. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know, Zach, anything else you want to add about the World Series, about Eddie Rosario, about the importance uh, of going all in? No, I just hope that we were able to enjoy the last baseball we might get for some time. We got playoff games, not in weird half-empty stadiums. So we got a, a semblance of a normal baseball season, and I was happy to cover it with you and, and Ben and Bobby all the way through. Yeah. We'll see uh, what excuse Ben comes up with to bail on us next year. He's going to have another kid right off the bat. Um, <laughs> so at least the two of us will be will be back. Uh, we'll be back uh, at the very least next week to to give you the the postseason wrap up and look ahead to the offseason. Um, so be sure to look out for that uh, exclusively on Spotify on the Ringer Baseball feed, where you can also find Baseball Barbecue on Tuesdays. Uh, thanks as always to Zach for joining me. Thanks to Bobby Wagner for producing today's episode. Thanks to Max Fried, Eddie Rosario, and Brent Strom for giving us stuff to talk about. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the off season, and we'll see you next time.